Hello, everybody out there in Radioland. My name is Harry Kaysen, and this half-hour film review show is called Movie Night. Why is it called Movie Night if it's on during the day? Movie Night refers to a person, not a time of day. It's K-N-I-G-H-T, a defender of the realm. I'm someone, perhaps like yourself, who enjoys and occasionally even respects the art of cinema. I am and have been a Hollywood writer for movies and TV. I've also been a director and even an actor, which can happen to you if you stick around long enough in Hollywood, though I now happily reside here in Cape Cod. My opinion on movies is mine and mine alone, but perhaps I might give you a handle on what you may or may not want to spend your time on. In other words, I'm not here to criticize other filmmakers. I'm here to recommend movies I admire. Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be reviewing four current feature films. The Batman, Kimmy, Prey, and the one film that is my current favorite right now. I'm keeping it a secret till later to hope to lure you in. Perhaps you've seen these films, perhaps not. Perhaps you're waiting for a reason to follow a dream from the dark into the light. Allow me to be your humble servant, your movie knight. During my time in Hollywood, I was privileged to rub elbows with a few notables, and I'll be interviewing one of these fine people each episode. My guest today is my friend, the writer and producer Leslie Dixon. Has she done much in Hollywood? Let me look at her bio. Oh, wait. She wrote a little something called Mrs. Doubtfire, also Overboard, The Thomas Crown Affair, Freaky Friday, Hairspray, Limitless, and even one of the Oscar broadcasts, beside a bunch of other stuff. She also produced Gone Girl and the TV series Limitless. Anyway, she's delightful and daring, and she tells it like it is, taking no prisoners. In other words, she's a hell of a lot of fun. I hope you can stick around for the interview. Let's get to our first movie. It's The Batman. It was written by Matt Reeves and Peter Craig from a character created by the immortal Bob Kane. It was directed by Matt Reeves, and it stars Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Jeffrey Wright, Paul Dano, and John Turturro. There's also another major star involved, pretty much in disguise. I won't spoil the surprise. You won't recognize him until you see the end credits. So... Why, in the name of all things holy, did they make yet another movie about Batman? I guess they felt like reinventing something that had already been reinvented countless times. But, for my money, this whole mad thing really works. There have been other versions I've liked, but this one grew on me as it held on to its singular vision. It's a noir detective story. It's incredibly dark more so than any of the other Batman films, and the bad guy, played by Paul Dano, is practically at horror movie level. Robert Pattinson does a very good job in the glowering title role. I think I saw him smile once. Maybe. Maybe not. His Batman does some serious ass-whooping, though occasionally this caped guy did make some mistakes here and there. He may be the Batman, but he's only human. Jeffrey Wright, a fine actor, plays Commissioner Gordon. But... The movie practically belongs to Zoe Kravitz as Selina Kyle, a name aficionados of this franchise will recognize as the real-life moniker of Catwoman. Of all the Catwomen I've seen, yes, I can't believe I just said that sentence myself, Miss Kravitz is by far the best. 
What else is interesting is that the Batman is represented to the rest of this gritty movie world like the freak he is, a snarling headcase in wrestling tights who consistently crashes crime scenes with his heavy clomping boots to the irritation and disgust of the police, thank you very much. I mean, who is this psycho anyway? As is my want, I won't give away too much plot, but the basics are this. The bad guy is holding Gotham City hostage with a series of cascadingly darker and darker murders, and the Batman is trying to somehow make sense of it all. This Gotham City is more sinister than any previous incarnations. To paraphrase Hunter Thompson, it's what America would look like if the Nazis had won World War II. Full-on creepy, hopelessly, dangerously creepy. However, there's a sinister beauty to the whole thing. The movie is clearly board-driven, meaning adhering to a storyboard, where every shot is carefully laid out ahead of time in stylized drawings, every frame with a balance and a cohesion, meticulously art-directed. Believe it or not, you've already seen many board-driven movies. Um, Star Wars, Blade Runner, Citizen Kane, and every Hitchcock, Spielberg, and James Cameron film. It's a tried-and-true formula, and in the right hands, it's a stunning way to tell a story. A living comic book, basically. With the right script, director, art director, and actors, you get swept up in the whole world-building adventure. And for my money, the Batman does exactly that. A warning. My wife didn't really go for this film. It was a bit too dark for her, and maybe too dark for some of you kind folks. But Pattinson and Kravitz have a lightning-in-a-bottle chemistry together. The look is fascinating, and there are surprises at every turn. If you're willing to suspend belief that a guy can survive a leap off 20-story buildings in a tricked-out Halloween costume, punch everyone in sight, careen around in an insanely hot car that Steve McQueen himself would lust for, and try to save a city long past saving, if you're up for that kind of thing, your inner fanboy, fangirl, or fan person will be thrilled. Okay, our next film is called Prey. It was written by Patrick Ason and Dan Trachtenberg, based on characters created by Jim and John Thomas. It was directed by Dan Trachtenberg, and it stars Amber Midthunder, Dakota Beavers, Stormy Kip, and Julian Black Antelope. This is the latest chapter in the line of Predator movies. You know, that high-tech invisible alien that hunts humans for the pure sport of it, which is the elevator pitch for the whole franchise right there. But in this case, the setting is not present day as the other Predator movies have been. This one is set in the American Great Plains of 1719, which is kind of a genius move. And who was in the American Great Plains in 1719? Comanches, to be exact, and it's all told from their point of view. We're talking bows and arrows here. What I thought would be just a gimmicky Bambi versus Godzilla kind of thing actually shows in great detail how a tribe of Comanches might just respond to some inconceivable super predator that could easily wipe them all out. All of the actors who play the Comanches are First Nation people themselves, as you may have noticed when I read out the cast list. Parts of the dialogue is in Comanche. And one of the producers, Jane Myers, is First Nation herself, and she went to great lengths to ensure the accuracy of what we're seeing. That in itself I found riveting, what with getting a window as to how that culture actually lived in those days. I read there's even a version of the film wherein all the Comanche characters speak only Comanche, which I think is wicked cool. A friend of mine 
A hundred years ago, her Caucasian mother spent summers in Canada among a Blackfoot tribe as a young teen. She fell completely under the spell of how natural, organic, and downright romantic their lifestyle was. I can now see why. The story is simplicity itself, and we follow Naru, a young Comanche girl who's bugged she can't play warrior with the big boys. Well, she certainly gets her chance here. Naru is played by Amber Mid-Thunder, our eyes and ears into this world. This fine actor has other credits to her name, but after seeing her in this film, I have to say, a star is born. Every time she was on screen, which was practically all the time, I could not take my eyes off of her. It's more than evident that all of the First Nation actors here are thrilled to be portraying authentic representations of their own ancestors. They give it everything they've got. A word of warning, though, in capital letters, this film is very violent. Not gratuitous, but fairly explicit. It is not for young children. I'm not usually a fan of films this bloody, but it remains compelling because these people are fighting for their lives using any means they can. It's a warrior's quest in every sense of the word. To quote the critic Pauline Kael in her admiring review of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, quote, When this film is over, you know you've been somewhere. End quote. Next up is the movie Kimmy. It was written by David Cope and was directed by Steven Soderbergh. It stars Zoe Kravitz, Byron Bowers, Rita Wilson, and Devin Rattray. Yes, you heard correctly. The director is Steven Soderbergh, who also helmed Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich, Ocean's 11, 12, 13, and he won the Academy Award for the movie Traffic. He's also the past president of the Directors Guild. I voted for him myself. So this guy is clearly a major player with the taste and track record to prove it. And Zoe Kravitz, well, I've already mentioned how great she is in The Batman. She's even better here because this is her show all the way. This film is a classic thriller in the wait until dark and blowout category with a story as straight as an arrow. No wonder Soderbergh saddled up. Here's the plot. I'll reveal only what's necessary so you can have the fun of discovering the rest. Ms. Kravitz plays a character named Angela. She's a techie for a Siri wannabe company, and her job is to sift through audio recordings of mistakes made by the device her company manufactures. That device is named Kimmy, as in, Kimmy, play me Beethoven's Fifth, or Kimmy, what's the weather for tomorrow? Angela combs through all these audio files from her home office. Now, during the course of one of Angela's sessions, she thinks she hears something in the background of one of these recordings, something dark and sinister happening to one of the clients. What to do? Oh, and one last important detail. The reason Angela has a home office has nothing to do with the pandemic. Turns out Angela is terrified of leaving her apartment, ever. She's severely agoraphobic, for reasons we'll discover. Her fear of being outside is as much a handicap to her as blindness was to Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. And, like Audrey Hepburn in that film, the baddies begin to realize Angela just may be onto them, and they start to come for her with a vengeance. Good thing she's got a supervisor she can trust. Or can she? Fans of Hitchcock films will recognize this setup. An ordinary person gets thrust into an extraordinary circumstance. Mr. Soderbergh, the director, and Mr. Cope, the writer, are having great fun here, getting the absolute most from the valiant Miss Kravitz as they toss curve after curve her way until the whole thing becomes a runaway train. You could call this another warrior quest, 
from a girl who didn't even know she was a warrior to begin with. I have seen this Swiss watch of a movie twice already, and I cannot wait to see it again. How's that for a positive review? And now it's time for my guest, and today I've got a doozy. She's a writer and producer responsible for Mrs. Doubtfire, Overboard, The Thomas Crown Affair, Gone Girl, Limitless. To name just a few, she's whip-smart, daring, and delightful. Ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Leslie Dixon. Anime, hi. Hi. How are you? I'm actually great. <laughs> so, Leslie, let me ask you this. Um, are there any, is there any such thing as a cardinal rule for screenwriting or cardinal rules? Well... My first advice to anybody that wants to get in this game is not to buy any of the boring-ass labyrinthian screenwriting books. <laughs> um, you know, they, they they bring to mind the old saying, those who can't do teach. Yeah. I, I would advise anyone to look on the back of the jacket and see the three episodes of television that one of these guys might have written, and those are their sole credit. And people so are... If really not books, if not books, then what? Well... Uh, it, people are both relieved and terrified when I tell them there is a one-sentence rule about writing a script, and if you can do it, the script will sell. And it's very simple. Does the reader want to turn the page to the next page? And Excellent. Many people who are paid to write scripts cannot do that. You know, uh, But for your first sale, you have to put on your best hat and your best foot forward, and if you can write a page turner, it's a given that you're going to get some interest from an agent at the very least. And the other rule is that an agent or a manager is your umbilicus into the business. Uh, if you have a good script, if your friends tell you they couldn't put it down, um, there are a lot of legitimate screenwriting contests. The Nichols Fellowship through Disney, Sundance. Uh, there's certainly websites that are going to list them all. They're legitimate, and if you if you win or place at one of those things, you'll probably get an agent or a manager out of it. So that's my advice for beginners. Excellent, excellent. Now, what about women in the industry? What do you suggest? Well, to them? well um, I have a very disappointing answer from my own personal experience. I was sexually harassed, but hilariously, not when I was in my 20s or 30s, which is when you think it would happen. Right. Uh, generally speaking, it did not occur at all as I was coming up in the world. And I was pretty cute and, and could have. <laughs> still um, are, still oh, are. Stop it, darling. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I could have been a tempting target in my 20s. But the truth of the matter is when you're a writer, they want the script more than they want to molest you. If you're a good writer, if you're what there's is known as a closer, you know, just somebody that could actually write a script that you wouldn't have to hire 11 writers to get it to where you wanted to get that 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 one writer could do it. Uh they don't want to mess with that. They would rather have the script than your ass. So <laughs> it's just true. Uh but I was strong, experienced, immediately reported it. And wasn't afraid at all because I was one of the producers on the movie. So, oh right. my this, this like, guy, this, this guy. guy was like a buddy oh. of the studio head, so it was awkward, but oh, I wasn't scared. Okay. I wasn't scared. And in fact, I was able to use it later as leverage over a few things with the script by saying, gee, I think I've been awfully nice about this harassment thing. Don't you? 
become a producer on your scripts as quickly as you possibly can. It elevates your stature. And generally speaking, that sort of stuff is even less likely to happen. Uh, let's talk actors for a minute. What uh, what kind of feelings do you have about uh, about some of the better or best actors you've worked with? Well, there's talent and then there's delightful to work with. And, some, and when you're lucky, they come in the same package. Oddly, the nicest, most delightful, collaborative, supportive actors I ever worked with, wait for it, were the best looking actors. Isn't that really? funny? You would think really? it would be the other way. But Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo, when I did Thomas Crown Affair, and by the way, that was Pierce's idea to remake that for himself, um, were so lovely in every conceivable way. Pierce is actually an Irishman, not an Englishman. Right. When you're hanging out with him, a little bit of the brogue comes out. Mm-hmm. And he's just he's the kind of guy that'll buy, uh, you know, a bar, an entire bar, a round of drinks because he's in a good mood. That's kind to everybody. That's just personal and sweet and cares about you. And Renee went above and beyond. Ditto Renee on all of those. And uh, during the premiere of the movie, she she came by herself because her husband hates those things and dragged me all along with her on the red carpet. So they couldn't take her picture without taking my picture Aww. to all the photographers. This is Leslie Dixon. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Great oh, that's right. That's I was embarrassed, but I was thrilled because no actor ever does anything like that. I'd agree. I'd agree. Well, I remember talking to you. You were just finishing up Limitless. It was about to be released. And uh, I asked you how it was going. And you said, every day, someone's trying to mess up your movie. Can you explain what that means? Oh, it just means that that Ryan Kavanaugh, the then head of Relativity Pictures, which imploded because we all were pretty sure it was a Ponzi scheme, that studio. Mm. And he literally had notes like, he wanted Bradley's, uh, for those who haven't seen the film, it's about a schlub who gets the ultimate smart pill, which is a great premise that I didn't invent because it came from a book. And that's another story. Mm-hmm. But um, he wanted the effects of the pill in Bradley Cooper's system to morph into superpowers so he could levitate uh, cars in the oh street. No. Oh, no. And, and I mean, Bradley was appalled. I was appalled. The you know we constantly had to push back against things like that. I see, I see. Uh, what uh, what have you seen uh, for twenty twenty two that you uh, that you liked? Well, my favorite movie of the year is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Sure. Uh, I thought it was imaginative, original, and finally, finally, a showcase for the great Michelle Yeoh, who my husband and I suggested for the part in. Um, the James Bond movie. Oh, the movie. James Bond movie, right, yeah. Oh, because it had a Chinese girl in it, and we were doing some consulting on the movie, and we said, have you seen any of those John Woo uh, Hong Kong action movies? Because Michelle Yeoh can really kick ass. She can actually do stuff, you know, as opposed to just hiring an actress and a stunt double. Yep. Check it out. And they did, and they hired her. So I feel, I feel very pleased. I, I, I'm not sure the casting director wouldn't have figured this out, but at the time, no one had heard of her. That's fine. They didn't watch those kind of movies, you know, whereas Tom and I love them. Sure. Uh, let me ask you uh, if there's a, do you ever put on a different cap to be a producer than a writer? Is that a different, because you've, you've produced things that you haven't written. Just a lot more responsibility. Um, 
on Limitless, I had a producing partner because I did not want to be the one to schmooze the movie into existence and make thousands of phone calls. So I invited an old friend to do it with me. My friend Scott Krupp. And so it's great when you can split up the duties. But um, yeah, there's a lot more involved. Uh, you have to do more handholding with the actors, make sure they're comfortable. Um, you have to be a liaison between the production and the studio. If there's a problem, they will call you. If there's a big problem, they'll call the director or they'll call you both at the same time. Ooh. But, um, you know, I don't want that phone call. I don't want that. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they will have things to put on your plate that you don't like. But maybe it's better that it's on your plate than someone else's who might make a bad decision. Yeah. Now, have you ever thought of directing? Was that anything that ever crossed your you mind? Know, from the very beginning of my career, I never wanted to direct. And the reason was my very first film, which was a female buddy picture, Outrageous Fortune, with Bette Midler and Shelley Long. Um, the director, Arthur Hiller, was an old hand, and he directed lots and lots of pictures, you know, Silver Streak, Americanization of Emily. I mean, he'd been around since directing TV in the 50s. Never, he said, had he been on a more contentious, difficult set. Oh. And the reason was because the two women, both of whom were terrific in the movie, and it didn't show on screen, hated each other from the moment they met. As the director said, it was instant hate and went downhill from there. Oh. And, and so there was a black vibe of death on the set. Oh, you know, dear. went on just there was these fuming hate kind of, you know, miasma that was over the whole production. And I saw what he had to get go through to get that movie in the can. And I realized it's a year of your life. During that year, you cannot be anyone's friend, mother, you know, anything, wife. Uh, all you're doing is this movie. And then it comes down to Friday night numbers. And if the Friday night numbers aren't good, you just lost a year of your life for nothing. Hmm. Whereas if just the writer you could write three scripts in a year and oh, yeah. and you know um increase their chances of getting made uh i was with you when a famous comedy writer uh introduced you to some friends of his saying i know she's a woman but she's really funny uh have oh, you has, has that been an issue your whole career absolutely not and that was i'm sure an edgy joke and i yeah. can laugh I can laugh at jokes like that. I mean, I'm not an angry feminist in any way. It's disappointing because people want to hear my horror stories in that way. But I will say that no one cares whether you're a woman or a man if you can write a good script. No one looks at the title page and goes, I'm not going to read this because a woman wrote it. They don't. And and even if they were like that, they'd give it five pages. Your first 10 pages are really important. So, no, I've never had any prejudice for being a woman. The only thing is they won't automatically try to offer you action movies or anything like that. If you want those kind of gigs, you have to write one yourself. Yeah. You're not if like me when I was writing a lot of comedy and uh, I would have liked to have done a thriller, but no one thought of me that way. So I found the book for Limitless all by myself. Um, so let's talk about the Oscars a little bit. Uh, the, this uh, episode will be uh, broadcast just before the Oscars. Uh, you wrote an episode of the Oscars, one of the one of the broadcasts. What was that like? First of all, for the women out there, uh, the DNA on my left cheek could have started the master race. I got so many sweet little pecks on the cheek from everybody from like Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo and Richard Gere and, you know, all these and, and Bradley, of course. But all these people 
And I joked to Tom afterwards, I could just scrape off my cheek and start a, a project of the best looking and most talented men that could ever come to be like the leave and storm and, and except, except <laughs> good, not evil. Well, Leslie, dear, it's been wonderful spending time with you. And I thank you so much for your time and your effort. And I look forward to seeing you in Cape Cod. Oh, I could eat lobster for a week very happily. Well, good. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here to encourage you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Okay, the final review, my favorite film of this episode. It is The Banshees of Inna Sharon. It was written and directed by Martin McDonough, and it stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keon. Oh, and by the way, not that I'm keeping track, but all of those people I just named, they've all been nominated for an Oscar for this film. Except for Martin McDonough. He's been nominated for two Oscars. And the movie is nominated as Best Picture. Impressive, but... Let's set that aside for a minute. The three films I reviewed earlier in this episode, I'm very fond of them, otherwise I wouldn't have reviewed them. They are what they seem to be, but The Banshees of Inishirin is not what it seems to be. Here's a thumbnail sketch of the plot. It's a remote Irish island in 1923. The islanders live a bucolic, leisurely-paced rural life, as islanders do. Some of them go to the local pub on a regular basis, as Irish islanders do. I can make that joke because I'm part Irish. The two main characters, played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, we discover have been good pals for some time. But as the movie opens, Mr. Gleeson's character, named Colm Sonny Larry, has decided he doesn't like the character no more, played by Colin Farrell, named Parik. Much to the confusion of Parik. What's Parik done to cause such a rift? Parik doesn't know. But Colm Sonny Larry is dead set on not liking Parik no more more. And that's the entire plot. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. In my next episode... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. True. On the surface, that is the entire plot. The quirky death of a friendship. But Mark McDonough has always pulled a bait and switch on us, devilish fellow that he is. Another of his movies, In Bruges, seems to be about two hitmen hiding out in Belgium. Or is it about one man's dedication to his sweet but oblivious best friend, even to the point of death? Another film by McDonough, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, seems to be about a murder mystery in a small town. Or is it about the bottomless grief a mother feels for the loss of her child that can only be expressed through rage, a rage that brings an unexpected ally her way at the last moment with just a glimmer of hope? By the way, as you probably know, both these serious-sounding movies are very funny. Oh, that Martin McDonough, he's so Irish and whimsical. Ha ha. Actually, I believe what he is, is universal. In this movie especially, he uses stereotypes in a seemingly charming, stereotypical Irish pubby environment to lure us in, get us to chuckle as he craftily pulls the wool from our eyes. More on that in a moment. And what support he gets from his cast, Colin Farrell gives a career-best performance here as the confused, then angry Parik, turning to his little donkey for solace. Brendan Gleeson is stellar as the more-than-headstrong ex-friend, Colm Sonny Larry. Carrie Condon shines as Parik's exasperated sister, Javon. And Perry Keon might just break your heart as Dominic, the lost-at-sea town Gom. That's Irish slang for dimwit, in case you're wondering. 
This is not the quaint, lucky charms Ireland of John Ford, even though it starts out that way. This is much more the beautifully tragic Ireland of James Joyce, a literary kindred soul to Mr. McDonough. In this movie, we see the feuds, the drinking, the merrily eccentric villagers. Gradually, we witness an ever-increasingly bizarre story about the yearning, the loneliness, and often pure bewilderment of the human spirit, those poor souls who feel lost in the stars. But amazingly, it is flat-out funny, too. Though I did just say it's tragic, didn't I? That's the wonder of this film. Funny, tragic. As George Bernard Shaw, another fine Irishman, said, If you're going to tell the truth, you better make them laugh, or they'll kill you. Well, that's this month's episode. Please join me every first Monday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on WOMR or streaming on WOMR.org. My sincere thanks to the talented Mr. Dunn, to my darling wife Lynn, who I make sit through these films, and to you, my dear listeners, who have your own choice to make. My name is Harry Kaysen. I am the Movie Knight. Goodbye and good movies.